One of the cool things about growing up in the pre-internet era of the 1980s and 1990s is that movies from my parents' generation were always on the docket for watching. And one of the cool things about being a parent myself is that soon I'll be able to show my kids movies from when I was their age and hope to create a long-lasting bond between us. I'm not kidding. I literally cannot wait to sit my daughters down and show them Star Wars for the first time, to see their reaction to I am your father and enjoy it. I kind of feel similar to when I was a kid and my parents showed me 1968's Planet of the Apes for the first time. Watching a crazy science fiction film about astronauts landing on a planet with talking apes and realizing that this was just a future Earth was awesome. Then immediately watching Beneath the Planet of the Apes next and how utterly nutty that story turned out to be. I'm not knocking Beneath the Planet of the Apes either, but it was the more intense movie of the original pair. Then, of course, you have the three sequels, and while I didn't hate them, I never enjoyed them as much as the original two. So, in the summer of 2001, I was pretty excited to see what Tim Burton would be showing us with his reboot of Planet of the Apes. I had grown up on Beetlejuice, Nightmare Before Christmas, Pee Wee Herman, and the rest of his films, so seeing him tackle this beloved franchise was something that I was actually pretty stoked for. It was also my first summer working at the Santee Drive-In Theater. This is going to be a place you will hear a lot about during the Patio Commentary series. I spent about 10 years working there between the summer of 2001 and spring 2015. It is and always will be my home away from home, and I truly loved my time working there. But summertime at the drive-in was intense, especially in Southern California. We were busy on the weekends with upwards of a thousand cars per night. And in the summer of 2001, I was working the popcorn machine in the snack bar. You know, I was the newbie, so they put me on the job with literally the least responsibility. The downside to this was that I missed out on watching the movies while I was on the clock. So I had to come back on my nights off and check them out. This would change when I would be promoted to the outside crew, and especially true when I became a manager a few years later. But anyways, it was because we were so busy that I missed out on watching Planet of the Apes during the first weekend, but I got to hear the audience come into the snack bar during the intermission and catch the gossip. Honestly, it was a mixed bag, more good than bad, but that was odd to hear. How could a Tim Burton movie not get universal praise? I was confused by this. My coworkers seemed to like it, so could the audience be wrong? Well, the honest truth is, both are correct. While I like Tim Burton's movies, I can see the flaws in it that would anger old-school Apes fans, because many of them wanted a remake, and not just something that used the name of Planet of the Apes, but was a different enough movie. Reboots and remakes are always like that, though. Some are good, most aren't necessary, but in the case of Tim Burton's flick, they were rebooting the Charlton Heston movie and not the original book. If you don't know, the original Planet of the Apes movie, co-written by Rod Sterling, by the way, was actually an adaptation of a French novel by the same name. It is a 1963 science fiction novel by French author Pierre Boulet. It was adapted into the 1968 film Planet of the Apes and therefore launching the entire Apes franchise. The novel tells the tale of three human explorers from Earth who visit and planet orbiting the star of Betelgeuse, in which great apes are the dominant, intelligent, and civilized species, whereas humans are reduced to savage, animal-like states. 
The overall story is similar enough to the original film with the exception that the original tale is more satire than a serious science fiction endeavor. But it had some weirder elements as well, like Nova, the human female, was in the book, and she bears the main character, a son, who rages rapidly in the first three months. And the apes have actually mastered space travel as well. Like I said, it's kind of weird. I'd argue that the ending of Tim Burton's film plays more into that story a bit more than its predecessor, but still there's some controversy surrounding that ending, and we'll get to it. The concept of Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes didn't start with him, but rather it goes back to 1988 when screenwriter Adam Rifkin, who wrote films like The Chase with Charlie Sheen and Detroit Rock City, which I do think is a comedy classic that never quite gets the love it deserves. Anyway, Rifkin wanted to treat the film like a sequel to the original series in the same vein as James Cameron's Aliens, except he wanted it to be a sequel to the original and not Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which makes sense because, you know, the whole nuclear annihilation thing at the end of the movie. Fox was really interested in making this movie with Rifkin, too. They titled it Return to the Planet of the Apes, and it was very close to being fast-tracked into pre-production. They went as far as to approach Tom Cruise and Charlie Sheen about starring in the film, but days before it was going to enter pre-production, a new batch of studio executives arrived at Fox, which, you know, caused creative differences between Rifkin and the studio. The studio wanted more rewrites and Rifkin obliged, but eventually the project was abandoned overall. Well, it was abandoned until Peter Jackson entered the fray, and he pitched an idea about the apes going through a renaissance. The Wikipedia page describes the story like this. The ape government becomes concerned over new artworks. The humans are revolting, and the liberal apes shelter a half-human, half-ape from the gorillas. Yeah, that's how they describe it, and it sounds wild, and I'm not necessarily saying that in a good way. I mean, if a script exists for this or an outline, I would absolutely love to read it. But that whole project came to a halt when one Fox executive didn't even like the Planet of the Apes series, and the whole thing just died on the vine. Apparently, Peter Jackson had also gotten Roddy McDowell to join the sequel, but the project died and Jackson went back to working on Heavenly Creatures. Truth be told, I'm much happier with this timeline, because if he had made a new Apes movie back in the 1990s, it's entirely possible he wouldn't have made the Lord of the Rings series, and I just cannot have that. Actually, Jackson was approached to make the movie again in 1998, during a time when the deal for the Lord of the Rings might fall through, but Roddy McDowell had died not long beforehand, and it just kind of killed Jackson's enthusiasm for the film. I mean, again, let me just say, well done, Peter. Well done. You made the right call. And after Jackson's exit, the studio looked to Oliver Stone to take over. I still don't quite know what the hell Fox was thinking if they didn't like what Peter Jackson was offering, and they went with Oliver freaking Stone. This is after Natural Born Killers. I mean, what kind of movie was Fox expecting him to make? I know what you're thinking, that Stone would make something crazy and over the top while being violent in a commentary on society. That's actually kind of what he was working on. However, the studio wanted apes to be their version of the Flintstones, and I'm not kidding on that either. Producer Dylan Sellers wanted the movie to be a comedy. He wanted a scene, and this is real, where the apes were playing baseball but without a pitcher. 
he felt that the main character would teach the apes how to play baseball, to be the missing link, so to speak, and that hilarity would ensue. Let's pair that idea with the concept that Stone and writer Terry Hayes had come up with. Their project was called Return of the Apes, and Wikipedia describes the plot like this. Set in the near future, a plague is making humans extinct. Geneticist Will Robinson discovers the plague is a genetic time bomb embedded in the Stone Age. He time travels with a pregnant colleague named Billy Ray Diamond to a time when Paleolithic humans were at war for the future of the planet with highly evolved apes. The ape's supreme commander is a gorilla named Drac. Robinson and Billy May discover a young human girl named Eve to be the next step in evolution. It is revealed that it was the apes that created the virus to destroy the human race. They protect her from the virus, thus ensuring the survival of the human race 102,000 years later. And ultimately, Billy Ray gives birth to a baby boy named Adam. So you can see where they're going with this. And the idea is actually pretty cool, I'm not going to lie. But that baseball thing is just freaking terrible. I get what Dylan Sellers was going for, but unless you had someone like John Carpenter or Paul Verhoeven to tackle the satire, it would just come across as studio interference and audiences would hate it. Even Fox president Peter Chernin called it one of the best scripts he had ever read and that he was hoping that this movie would spawn a whole new franchise around it. I mean, we're talking sequels, TV shows, <laughs> you know, and of course, merchandise. And even in 1994, Arnold Schwarzenegger himself had signed on for the lead role, on the condition, though, that he'd get to sign off on the director. What's funny is that Terry Hayes wouldn't budge on that baseball scene, and when he turned in a new draft for the script still without that scene, Dylan Sellers fired him. Never mind that the president of the studio loved the script, but hey, Hollywood is a cruel mistress. And not to play too crazy with that whole karma is a bitch thing here, but it wasn't long after that Dylan Sellers drunkenly ran a stop sign in Brentwood and killed his friend and colleague, Louis Sherratt, who was only 26 years old. Dylan was sentenced to one year in county jail and three years on probation, and he's still working, by the way. He recently produced the very popular Palm Springs film that's on Hulu. Like I said before, in Hollywood, you fail upwards. Now, from there, Chernin exited the studio and then was replaced by Tom Rothman, who we all know just sucks. But Rothman wanted to bring fresh blood to the script. So Christopher Columbus was hired. Columbus wanted to make a film that was more like the original novel and not something that would be similar to Terminator or anything like that. He hired his friend Sam Hamm, who co-wrote his unproduced Fantastic Four screenplay. And Wikipedia's breakdown of that script idea is, well... You got to hear it for yourself. This is what it says. Ham's script had an ape astronaut from another planet crash landing in New York Harbor, launching a virus that will make human beings extinct. Dr. Susan Landis, who works for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Alexander Troy, an Area 51 scientist, use the ape spacecraft to return to the virus's planet of origin, hoping to find an antidote. What they find is an urban environment where apes armed with heavy weapons hunt humans. The main villain was Lord Zaius, in contract to Dr. Zaius. Lord Zaius was cruel to the humans. Landis and Troy discover the antidote and return to Earth, only to find in their 74-year absence that apes have taken over the planet. 
The Statue of Liberty's once proud porcelain features have been crudely chiseled into a grotesque likeness of a giant grinning ape. Surprisingly, Fox wasn't digging it, and eventually Columbus left the project to go make Jingle All the Way, which is the superior film. And Fox actually offered the director's chair to Roland Emmerich in 1996. And when that didn't work out, they went right to James Cameron and tried getting him on board. And Cameron had a totally different take during his talks with Fox. He wanted to tell a story that would be a sequel to Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes. But while these talks were ongoing, Cameron, who was directing and producing Titanic at Fox, uh, went on to go and smash every single record known to man and win all those Academy Awards. So then afterward, James Cameron simply yeeted himself from the conversation. This is actually the point in time when Fox went back to Peter Jackson, who just didn't want to make the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and James Cameron producing. This was mostly because he figured that there would be conflict over the direction of the film. And quite frankly, he's correct. As much as I love James Cameron, he's got a hell of an ego, especially after he threw Tim Miller under the bus after Terminator Dark Fate bombed. He probably would have done the same to Peter Jackson in some respect. And guess who the last person Fox offered the director's role to before Burton? Michael freaking Bay. Apparently, he just turned down the job, which seems odd for Michael Bay, because at that period of his career, he was in between The Rock and Bad Boys, so he was flying pretty high. But he actually went off to go make Pearl Harbor instead. Maybe he should have just done Apes. Maybe that would have put him off of Transformers. Maybe there's another timeline where this theory happened. Wouldn't that be nice? And there was one more director that Fox approached over this, but I haven't been able to lock down when it happened. And that was actually Steven Spielberg. I don't know any other story about that, just that they had approached him at some point in time to make this movie, which would have been insane. But he went to go do AI instead. So we know how that turned out. And finally, after all of that, Fox was able to lock down Tim Burton in early 2000. He was attracted by the script that William Broyles was able to put together when he had complete creative control from Fox. This was actually able to attract Richard D. Zanuck to sign on as a producer, who actually greenlit the original film back in 1967. It was obviously an emotional thing for Zanuck, and I can only imagine how excited he would have been to go back to one of his crowning achievements. But Fox wasn't really digging on Burton's reportedly $200 million budget based off of Braille's script. And it was just a couple of months before principal photography that Fox wanted to have the budget by bringing on two other screenwriters. These were Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal. Connor was known for writing films like Star Trek VI Undiscovered Country and Superman IV The Quest for Peace. Rosenthal was his writing partner on films like Mighty Joe Young and Mercury Rising, but in his own right, he wrote Jewel of the Nile, which isn't as good as Romancing the Stone, but still not a terrible Indiana Jones ripoff. To give you an idea, though, for how badly 20th Century Fox wanted this movie to come out, they had the rewrites going on while the sets were being built. Not only that, but they set a hard release date of July 2001, and they wouldn't budge on it at all which kind of put Tim Burton in an impossible situation. Then Burton was placed in another impossible situation when he had to choose between working with Stan Winston or Rick Baker for the ape makeup. 
Winston was the original designer, but he did leave over creative differences, and Burton chose to work with Rick Baker, with whom he had enjoyed a partnership on Ed Wood with. Rick Baker actually had his own kind of score to settle, so to speak, because he had worked on Dino De Laurentiis' King Kong back in 1976 and regretted not being able to make it as realistic as he wanted. This was his chance at redeeming himself. And to be honest, the effects on these apes were pretty top-notch for the beginning of the new century, and the makeup still holds up 20 years later. But the makeup was actually a nightmare for the actors because they had to get up at 2 a.m. and spend four and a half hours applying the prosthetics, work the full day, and then go through a 90-minute process of removing the makeup at the end of the day. At one point, Michael Clark Duncan actually sprained his ankle while shooting, and he had to go to the hospital in full gorilla makeup. I really do hope that there are some photos of this that exist, because it would be really funny to see. Also, rest in peace to Michael Clark Duncan. You will be missed. When it came to the casting of the movie, there are a couple of really interesting stories here, especially one from Mark Wahlberg, who signed up for this movie after just meeting with Tim Burton for five minutes. He really just wanted to work with Tim Burton, which I completely understand. Though in order to make sure he was able to solidify himself as an action star and not an underwear model, Wahlberg refused to don a loincloth similar to Charlton Heston in the original film. I know I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but one thing that stands out in the aftermath of this movie is that in 2011, when asked about comparing the reboot of Planet of the Apes to Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Wahlberg admitted that the Burton film wasn't good, but he defended Burton in the process, claiming that Fox bungled it. And if you know anything about Tom Rothman, you know exactly how this came to be. But I do want to say good on Mark for coming out and defending Burton while throwing the studio under the bus. A lot of actors would make up some bullshit, but I'm glad that Mark didn't. Also at the time, Mark Wahlberg had committed to working on Ocean's Eleven in the Linus role that Matt Damon took over, and he left that movie in order to go make Planet of the Apes, so that's pretty funny. Tim Roth, on the other hand, had a pretty terrible experience overall. First, things were actually looking up for him. He had asked Tim Burton if he could rewrite some scenes in order to make his character General Thade more frightening, and Burton, to his credit, encouraged the idea. This probably helped Roth get through the torturous hours of makeup that were needed every day on set. He didn't actually have an issue with that process overall, but he found the costume terribly uncomfortable. By the end of the shoot, he had trapped nerves and two herniated vertebrae in his back. And also, and this is crazy, Roth hated Charlton Heston. And I mean hated Charlton Heston. Not because Heston pissed in his Cheerios or anything, but that Heston was the president of the National Rifle Association at the time. And Tim Roth was, and still is, very anti-gun and very pro-gun control. The scene where Thade had to talk to his father really did anger Roth, but he's a professional and he chose to just work with Heston for that one scene. Later on, he did admit that if he had known about that particular scene first, he wouldn't have taken the role. I get this, but I'm so glad that scene exists because General Thade is meant to hate his father and the condemnation that Roth has for Heston can be felt in that scene. And then there's also Helena Bonham Carter, who met and fell in love with Tim Burton because of this movie. Her character, Ari, was originally planned to be an ape princess, but they later changed it to a more liberal-minded ape 
who just happens to be a senator's daughter. I feel like this kind of made more sense looking back at not only the original film, but the original book. However, she was kind of meant to be the love interest for Mark Wahlberg's Leo Davidson at first, and Fox was heavily against any kind of human-to-ape romance because they felt it was weird and unnatural. Burton tried to offer some kind of compromise by calling it toned down, but the studio's veto still stood after the fact. And even at the end of the movie when Ari and Leo kiss, it always felt weird. It didn't feel platonic, but it also didn't feel romantic. It just felt out of place, like the Raylo kiss at the end of Rise of Skywalker. But only this time it was interspecies erotica. Kind of. The filming of the movie itself started in November 2000 and ran through April 2001. Think about this. The movie wrapped filming just three months before its release. And there were script rewrites happening while the sets were being built in order to reduce the budget by half. And 20th Century Fox wanted the movie to come out by July 2001. For the 13 years it spent trying to get this movie made, they sure rushed it out the gate at the end. This might explain why the ending was so controversial. At the end of the movie, Mark Wahlberg's Leo Davidson goes back in time through an electromagnetic storm, but discovers that General Thade had beat him to the punch and had taken over Earth. It was definitely a departure from the original film, and this left audiences scratching their heads. Helena Bonham Carter defends the ending, understanding that it was setting up a sequel, but Tim Roth never quite got it. Hell, the whole cast signed on for a sequel, and even though the movie grossed $362 million worldwide on a $100 million budget, Fox decided to scrap the sequel because of the critical response. Yes, Fox turned down making a sequel to a profitable movie, which, by the way, also earned more than $40 million from home video sales in the early 2000s because the critics were mean to it. Granted, in some aspects, the critics weren't wrong. I mean, Roger Ebert called the film great looking, but said that even fans of the franchise would end up renting the original film and not this one. He isn't wrong necessarily. I know a lot of people who didn't care for this movie after the fact. Though, in researching it and re-watching it, I actually have a greater appreciation for it. I mean, maybe I just like to look at these things through rose-colored glasses, but... I just happen to like movies, and so I get to see the little details, and to me, that always makes the experience a lot better. However, CinemaScore wasn't very kind either. Audiences gave it a B-, which is not very good. Metacritic rated it as mixed or average with their review score. And ultimately, it's a middle-of-the-road movie overall. It's not Burton's best work. It's not his worst by a long shot. This is just another example of Hollywood mining their intellectual properties, not because they should, but because they could, capitalizing on the name brand of something people have adored for decades. I'd like to say that this is a lesson learned for 20th Century Fox, or any studio, really, but we all know that's a load of crap. At the end, I'm thankful this movie exists, the idea of it still impresses me, and Rick Baker's effects still hold up. I would have liked to see a sequel, to see the story fleshed out and finished, but like a ton of movies that set up a universe, we'll never get to see those to come to fruition. That being said, this movie's failure, if that's what you want to call it, pushed Fox to hold off for a while until Rise of the Planet of the Apes in 2011. And quite frankly, we're better off as a result. Now, Disney owns the franchise, and in December 2019, 
they announced that a new movie was being developed with Wes Ball directing. Whether or not it's a sequel to Matt Reeves' excellent War for the Planet of the Apes or not has yet to be seen. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned a controversy surrounding the ending. It wasn't just the divisive nature surrounding it. In fact, Kevin Smith felt that Tim Burton had ripped off his original concept that he had put in a Jay and Silent Bob comic three years before Planet of the Apes came out. He had made a joke to the New York Post about suing Burton and suing Fox over this, which had prompted a response from Tim Burton, who openly admitted to never reading comic books. Never mind, he has directed two of the most influential comic book movies of all time and set the tone for decades to come. So I find that to be pretty funny. Kevin Smith admitted the whole thing was just an offhand joke. He never had any intention of suing Fox, but you can tell that he was probably a little irate at the whole thing, thinking that his idea had been lifted for the end of this movie. And in the end of the day, Kevin Smith probably got the last laugh because the Viewers universe has lived on, whereas this franchise didn't. And look, with that, I am curious to know your guys' thoughts on this one. I do enjoy this movie for the most part. It is not a terrible film. It's a fun popcorn film, but it's also something that you can watch and then just move on with your day. It's never going to make you question any kind of morality or any kind of societal commentary. It is just what it is. And it also shows you how kind of creatively bankrupt the studios can be when they're trying to find a way to force a movie on the audiences. But as always, thank you guys for listening to Patio Commentary. If you are listening to this on YouTube, please leave a like, leave a comment. If you are listening to this on podcasts, thank you so much. And please leave a, a review on iTunes or subscribe where you can. I'll talk to you guys next week for another episode here on Patio Commentary. Have yourself a great week and peace out.